Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern, and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Philip S. Meilinger, author of Thoughts on War, published by the University Press of Kentucky, March 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Well, good afternoon, Chris. Good talking to you. Thanks for having me on. So first, how did how did you get into studying and writing a book on on war, war theory? I was in the Air Force for 30 years as a as a pilot, and I uh, served in the Pentagon during Desert Storm, uh, and I also got a doctorate at the University of Michigan on military history. So I spent a lot of time also towards the end of my career teaching at all of the war colleges and staff colleges in this country, uh, as well as uh, a number of them abroad. And although my area, main area of expertise is, uh, is air power, aviation history, theory, doctrine, operations, most of the time I was actually teaching the broader subject of military history in general. That was good, because what it did was allow me to see air power in context and to see how it fit into the vast continuum of military history and uh, in general and how things have changed and whatnot. Uh, also, what I found very interesting because of my uh, operational experience working with the other services, say in the Pentagon, uh, and then teaching and talking to soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen all over and, and Europeans as well, was that they don't think the same. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a surprise to me, in a way, that when I would get to the Pentagon, for example, and I would go have a meeting dealing with a doctrine, some fundamental subjects, topics, dealing with war, dealing with strategy, dealing with technology, the services, an army, a soldier or a Marine or a sailor might have a totally different viewpoint than uh, an airman did or that, that I did. And similarly, Europeans don't think like Americans mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to things like strategy and, and, and whatnot. So that kind of opened my eyes. And what I realized was that a lot of conventional wisdom in military affairs is not conventional wisdom for everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the conventional wisdom of a typical soldier may not be the same as that for a sailor or an airman or a Brit or a Norwegian. They think in, in different ways. And so that forced me over the years to start looking at basic at basic concepts and to start questioning uh, most of the things that I read. So when I would come across a statement or a uh, an interpretation that was pretty well accepted, I would stand back and say, well, wait a minute now, let me think about that a little bit more. Let me look into that. And so what I think it, this book is really a, a book of anomalies. It's it's a, a story of various topics that I have come across over the past decade or so, some of which I have been thinking about for much longer than that, maybe 20 years, 25 years, uh, about warfare and about certain aspects of warfare that I took a different look at and I think I came up with certain uh, or different interpretations of. Now, the book description says you revisit historical campaigns uh, when you're looking at this. Um, can you can you mention which uh, campaigns you, you use for this? Well, just 
everything, not everything, but uh, going back to ancient warfare, you know, uh, will it be Alexander the Great, the Peloponnesian War, uh, the Romans, certainly, all the way up through the Middle Ages, and, uh, you know, up, in, up until present time, and, you know, Napoleonic Warfare, American Civil War, and, of course, the Great Wars of the 20th century, mm-hmm. and, and, and the aftermath, the wars since then. And in fact, um, after I retired from the Air Force in 2000, after 30 years, I worked as a defense analyst in D.C. And it was about that time, obviously, and, you know, I was there in 2000 from after 9-11 and whatnot. So I was able to examine pretty closely and get pretty much involved with or close to events that were unfolding in the Middle East. And so that gave me a lot of insights as well. Uh, to talking to some of the leading participants and players and whatnot about what was happening over there. And so that also, I think, assisted in giving me, you know, different insights uh, than what I ordinarily would not have had or would have thought, um, you know, in in previous years. So tell me um, some of the things that you found that didn't quite make sense to you or, um, or disparities in thinking, like you had just mentioned. Well... The first one, and it's uh, is the influence of Karl von Clausewitz. I've got a problem with him, and I've had it for a long time. Uh, everywhere I've been, they teach Clausewitz um, at all the war colleges, all the staff colleges and academies in this country, uh, and plus abroad. He is revered. And in a way, he should be. Right? He was a brilliant guy, and he was a great theorist and, and writer about warfare. But in my view, the way he has been taught, and I've watched him being taught by dozens of different people over the years, uh, I have issues with. And that, I say that's when I would stop, go back, and look at it more closely and say, now, wait a minute, wh- what's going on here? For example, Clausewitz spends an enormous amount of time in his book On War talking about fighting a decisive, bloody battle so that you can then occupy the enemy's territory and impose your will on the enemy. And that is not an aberration. He says that over and over and over. And in my first chapter in this book, I list, I think, two dozen different quotations out of his book on war. Uh, And there's a lot more than just the two dozen that I cite, where he says very explicitly and very specifically that the only way to win a war is to find and destroy the enemy's army. That is your main objective, always and forever. He talks a little bit occasionally. He'll take off on a tangent and talk about how you split an alliance, for example. That you know it's got political effects. Well, how do you do that? Well, the best way to do that is by destroy the army of one of the participants and drive it out of the war. So the focus is always on destruction of the enemy army. So that kind of a force on force. Outlook and, and essentially describing that that is what warfare is, is almost all about is to me uh, has caused no end of, of problems uh, in, in this country and whatnot. I think over the years, the culture of force on force engagements and a major land battle has, has influenced and indeed taken over the culture of, for example, the U.S. Army and other armies around the world, and that not not necessarily uh, is that going to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other problems with Clausewitz that I had was that not only did he talk about 
major battle as being crucial and being what warfare was really all about, and he says a couple of times, that I don't want to hear about generals who say they can win war without bloodshed and without battle by just using maneuver. I don't want to hear about that. Hmm. That is just a fantasy that must be dispelled. The only way to win wars is to fight the bloody battle and to win it. So, as I say, that to me was kind of a a theme which he stressed over and over again. Hmm. Now, why did he do that? Because he fought in the Napoleonic Wars. He was a Prussian general. He witnessed that type of warfare. He himself said that was essentially absolute war, was Napoleonic warfare. And so he was deeply influenced as a European and as a conventional soldier on how to fight conventional wars. He therefore virtually ignored anything that didn't happen in Europe, in that in Western Europe. And so there is no references whatsoever to ancient warfare in the Middle East or the Far East or the Americas, things like that. And he, again, his focus was specifically on conventional warfare. And so he very, almost never talked about unconventional war or insurgencies or guerrillas. In fact, although he's got a chapter on unconventional warfare, he denigrates it. And he says that second-rate troops, but just the second-rate troops that usually can't achieve anything of importance. Hmm. Well, during his lifetime, three major insurgencies were going on in the Americas, between the British and the Colonials, in Russia, between the French Army and the, and the Cossacks, and, of course, in Iberia, between the French Army and the and Spaniards and, and the Portuguese. Hmm. Extremely important examples that he virtually totally ignores. He makes a reference to them uh, maybe once or twice throughout the book, but he doesn't go into any detail at all on how this type of warfare was fundamentally different than the types of warfare that he was really talking about. He wanted to talk about European conventional war. He did not want to talk about Asian war. He did not want to talk about guerrillas and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that cultural mindset of his has been kind of translated down and and absorbed by a great many other military services and countries in the 200 years since then mm-hmm. to the extent that if the only if the only tool in your tool bag is a hammer then everything starts to look like a nail right and so you have the doctrine of the of the various uh, ground services saying over and over again that the solution to this about any problem is boots on the ground and we've got to flow in a lot of boots, we've got to fight and destroy the enemy, and then we've got to occupy his territory and impose our will upon him. That's the way they think. That's their culture. And I think that has come down to us um, through Clausewitz, and as I say, that's not really such a good such a good thing. I'm speaking with Philip S. Meilinger, author of Thoughts on War. You can find more information on the book at the University of Kentucky Press website. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support.
And now back to the podcast. So the description of the book says that, um, and I guess this this sort of seems like the goal of the book, is to re-examine how 21st century warfare should be conducted, and yet it sounds like you also re-examine historical um, battles and conflicts with, with the idea you just presented. Uh, th- that is true to some extent, um, although I, I will admit that prior to you know the, the advent of the aircraft where, where it became really a viable weapon of war, which does not really occur until about halfway through World War II, um, it, it made sense. A lot of what Clausewitz said made sense. Uh, as far as using large armies to invade another country and fight the big battle, like I say, that's what Napoleonic warfare was all about. That's what the American Civil War was all about. World War One and World War Two were all about that, and it made sense. Now, some Sioux advocate might disagree and say there were other ways to go about that, but like I say, that was the cultural mindset of Western Europeans and Americans, I think, for a good 200 years, or maybe 150 at least. Uh, and it, it seemed to make uh, a great deal of sense. If I may, another problem that I that I have with Clausewitz, which mm-hmm. uh, I thought about a lot, was his most famous one-liner, I call it. And his most famous one-liner is, war is an extension of policy. You hear that over and over. It's usually trotted out whenever someone thinks that a government or a general or a commander made a mistake Vietnam, classic example, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden the Neil Clausewitzians come out and say, "Well, there you go. We just we just forgot all about Clausewitz's most important victim. That war is an extension of policy, and it's said in this tone of sage wisdom that brooks no contrary word." Mm-hmm. So I've heard that over and over for decades, and so I started to think about that, and I said, "Well, okay, define policy." And Clausewitz doesn't define it, but others try to. And for example, in, in the in the chapter chapter two, I think it is, I cite Christopher Basford, who who says this is what Clausewitz meant by the term policy. Again, since he never defined it himself, he says it's rational action undertaken by an individual or group which already has power in order to use, maintain, and extend that power. Unquote. So if that's the definition of policy that Clausewitz was interpreting or using, there's problems with it, big problems. First of all, it says that it's for a group that already has power, which just defines out of the set anything dealing with guerrillas or insurgents because obviously they don't have power, mm-hmm. and they're trying to get it. So does that mean that they can't have a policy, that they're not a part of modern war? You know, obviously that can't be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started looking at what is actually meant by policy in, in general. And Basford's definition is so broad, I think, as to be almost meaningless. And so if you were to ask someone, okay, when you talk about what war is an, in- is an instrument of policy, do you mean that a government has to do things for the correct foreign policy reasons? Absolutely. Okay, can domestic politics play a role in that? Oh, yeah, sure can. How about economics? Uh, Yes, economics can too. What about revenge? You know, the French want Alsace-Lorraine back after 1870. Yep, revenge is a good one. Revanchism. How about culture? How about 
ideology, communism versus a democracy. How about religion? Like, is, uh, yes, they'll say yes to all of those things. And pretty soon you're left with a, the, the realization that policy includes just about any reason why a country is going to go to war. And that, to me, is tantamount for, for, to say that war is an instrument of policy, or in other words, you ought to have a pretty good reason for going to war. Well, I don't see that as particularly profound. And so that troubled me that we based our return to brace our foreign policy or our military policy on this famous one-liner that war is an instrument of policy, when I'm not sure that really tells us anything about what we're supposed to do in life uh, in when we're, we're going into conflict. And in fact, I thought about warfare over the past 200 years since that line was written, and I cannot think of a single country in a single war that upon going to war in the first place did not think it was a good idea, that it was a rational act that had been thought through, that it had been prepared for, that it was righteous, and that the people were supporting it. If that's the case where every country in every war think that, then they, that they have indeed gone to war because it's war is an instrument of policy, then, like I say, the, the, uh, the one-liner to me becomes meaningless. So, I, again, I, I wanted to write about that and try to explain why my feelings on that were, you know, different than I think what the, what the normal people would necessarily say. So it seems that, um, so if you're going to revisit U.S. military doctrine and, and also doctrine, I, I guess maybe of any any uh, ally or Western power, you point out uh, that uh, the U.S. fight, at least the book, book blurb points out, the U.S. fights small overseas wars by, by global mandate to overthrow dictators, destroy terrorist groups, and broker regional peace. Now, changing doctrine would involve big changes in planning, uh, training, acquisition uh, plans do you are you arguing that that needs to be done that there needs to be a major shift in doctrine and the whole military structure well that's that's a tough one in, in a way um, I would I guess I would argue somewhat flippantly that redundancy is the true American way of war and by that I mean that it's always been very difficult for American military and political leaders to make a really strong decision on military policy, on whether, for example, one should favor the Army, one should favor the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps. And, and so instead what, what we usually do, regardless of the administration, regardless of who's in charge, regardless of whether, what political party they're from, Regardless of whether they're a, a pacifist or a dove, what ends up happening is that there's usually a one-third, one-third, one-third split, or very close to it in the in the defense budget, and it's kind of always been that way. And in a way, I would argue paradoxically that that failure to make a decision and and to really make hard choices between what's more important: a heavy division versus special ops, a aircraft carrier versus a bomber. Uh, you know, th those types of things where big money is involved and you're going to choose between weapon systems. Usually, our leaders don't want to make those kinds of big decisions. 
And so the result is, like I say, paradoxically, it's because of that inability to make a strong decision. We have enormous flexibility. I mean, if we had the world's best army, maybe an enemy could deal with that. But we've also got the world's best navy and the world's best air force and the world's best space force and the world's best special operations force. And you throw all that together and it becomes virtually impossible for me for any uh, enemy to try to take us on in in so many of these various areas because, uh, like I say, we've got the money and and because of our inability or, or deliberate failure to choose uh, whether we're going to become a land-centric or an air-centric or a sea-centric country, we're going to be all of those. And that makes it extremely difficult for any country to take us on. How do you... How do you feel nuclear power has changed the equation? Do you, do you address it at all in this book? Uh, I I do refer to it. Obviously, back in the 60s and the 50s, that was a huge topic, and I've written books on, on strategic air command and and the you know nuclear balance of terror and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, to me, it, it it fundamentally changed warfare in 1945, and it has ever since but it did so for psychological reasons more than anything else. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, I use I like to use the example of uh, the Romans destroying Carthage. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Third Punic War, they destroy Carthage, they burn down the city, they sow the ground with salt so that nothing will grow, allegedly. They kill the inhabitants of the city, sell them or sell them all into slavery. In other words, they really do a, a job mm-hmm. on Carthage. Well, you think about it, it's pretty similar to what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, the the difference between those two events was that the profound psychological impact of having a dozen Roman legions doing that over a period of months or years versus one plane, one bomb, two seconds. Mm-hmm. And I think it was that profound psychological impact of the atomic bomb that had such an effect on American thinkers and world thinkers and continues to have that, which is probably why they've never been used again since 1945. Uh, so is nuclear weaponry and, and nuclear strategy still important? Absolutely, if only because we've got to make sure it'll never happen. So we've got to have a, con- a nuclear deterrent capability. So I don't think we can scrap all our bombs. Sounds nice. Sounds like a you know humane thing to do, but we can't do that. We can't get rid of all our nuclear power because that may be one of the reasons why nuclear war has never broken out since 1945. It's because if so many countries are prepared to use nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. so in that sense, I think nuclear weapons have have deterred war down to the conventional level. And part of my argument then would be that as a result of what has happened since World War II it is now being deterred down almost to the unconventional level mm-hmm. as well. And so, yes, I do see a new paradigm emerging, a new formula emerging for how, especially we in the United States and in the West in general, but we specifically in the U.S., should approach warfare in the 21st century. Do you think it's become easier in the last, I don't know, 20 
20 years or so because of information technology and such, do you think it's become easier for non-state actors, you know, like ISIS or Al-Qaeda to, to wage war more or less effectively to, to some extent, um, than it has been in the past, or is it just a different flavor of what's always been the case throughout history? I think it has changed things dramatically and fundamentally. Um, as I say, you know, nukes have deterred war down to the conventional level, and in a sense, American American conventional might, in all of its various manifestations, has deterred it down to the unconventional level. I mean, Saddam Hussein, anybody who's watching that war realizes that no matter how big your army is, if you have the fourth largest army in the world, and you're on your home territory, and you're dug in, and you've got time to prepare, and you're on interior lines, when you fight the United States, you don't have a prayer. And that, to me, was a real eye-opener to a lot of different places, a lot of different people. And that's why I, I do think that things like Desert Storm have, de- have deterred war down to uh, less than a conventional level. Nobody's going to take us on conventionally anymore because they know that they don't have a chance. And so that means terrorists and, and insurgent groups and, and rebels and whatnot are going to look for asymmetric ways of hitting the United States. And as you mentioned, cyber war, hacking, that sort of thing, are one of the ways of doing that. Cruise missiles, uh, scuds, ballistic missiles. You know, we spent a lot of time worrying about those things because they're out there and they're very difficult for us to counter. So we've got to try to develop defenses to try to defeat things like cruise missile attacks or or ballistic missile attacks like SCUDs, or terrorism, or IEDs, and all of these other uh, technologies and strategies that have been devised by rebels. Uh, you know, I guess you could argue historically that guerrillas have always been in that position, where they have always been fighting kind of a poor man's war against a colonial or imperialist master or someone who's got more resources, more people, more money, so they therefore have to come up with uh, a new wrinkle. They've got to come up with different ways, asymmetrical ways, of fighting the enemy where they're not fighting him to his strength. They're trying to find weaknesses in his in his armor, chinks in his armor, where they can attack. And I think what has happened is that the, um, the explosion of, of new technologies like the cyber and whatnot and in in other places, have made um, that tendency even greater now than it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. Like I said, the Viet Cong were using asymmetrical strategies against this mightiest power, military power in the world, the mm-hmm. United States. Uh, so in, in a sense, that's not a new. Sun Tzu talked about it 2,500 years ago. In that sense, it's not new. But the uh, more technologies and and the the realization, uh, I, I suppose, that uh, we in the West are are so powerful in in conventional warfare that it is simply folly to try to take us on uh, has has forced uh, people to think in different ways. So then, a similar question in that whether what I'm going to describe is new or just something old with a different flavor. With Russia taking Crimea from from Ukraine and, and moving into um, eastern Ukraine and also 
you know, getting involved in little wars in its former republics to maintain control and then thinking about China slowly moving into the South China Sea and then developing trade ties within Africa and such, you know, developing economic allies um, and by extension, almost military power or military influence. Are the are, are are they perform are they doing things in a new way or is it just old old stuff being done again? Oh, interesting question. I think I had mentioned before about the about the importance of maintaining our nuclear deterrent. I think maintain our conventional deterrent. So uh, even though I'm a big advocate of like special operation forces and, and uh, ISR and air power and drone warfare in space. Uh, I am, I'm never going to say we ought to get rid of the army or we ought to get rid of our surface fleet, things like that. I'm not going to say that because I think those, uh, forces are necessary to deter, uh, you know, our traditional, if you want to call them traditional enemies in the, in the 20th century, uh, the Soviet Union, now Russia and China. So, uh, their actions now, as you say, starting to encroach, starting to increase their power, in, uh, are, are not really anything new. I mean, one could one could argue that the Soviets or the Russians, really, for a thousand years, have been have, have been slowly trying to push their borders out, and they kind of expand and they contract depending on whether or not they're successful in warfare or not. Uh, you know, whether it be into the Baltic states or whether into the stands down in, in southern Asia, or as you say, in, in Crimea or Ukraine. Uh, those were areas that they've had in the past, and they are probably thinking that they might want to get them back uh, again in the future. Are they willing to w- risk a major war to do that? Probably not. Uh, but I think we have to be aware that for, like I say, a thousand years, the Russians have been looking at the countries around them as resource areas, as buffer states and whatnot, uh, between them and, and and the other countries, and I think the Chinese have always been that type of a power as well, where they have looked it upon uh, a right for the last thousand years to be able to have a strong influence on what happens in the neighboring countries, like for example Korea, or for example like Vietnam, uh, and and the outlying islands and whatnot. And so, in in that sense, we shouldn't be surprised in the United States and the West, that Russia and China, once they get their economic houses in order, which certainly the Chinese have, I'm not sure the Russians have quite yet, but we should not be surprised that they are, in a sense, resorting to type and going back to their traditional notion of being a expansionist local power within their sphere of influence, what they consider to be their sphere of influence. I'm speaking with Philip S. Meilinger, author of Thoughts on War. You can find more information on the book at the University of Kentucky Press website. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. 
I feel like there are so many different ways we could go with this conversation. Um, okay, so you did address it. You seem satisfied with with what U.S. military doctrine is at the moment, or or maybe I misunderstood you. Do you think there needs to be changes in doctrine? There is a, a mention also, again, with the book description. Um, I'm about- not sure doctrine is the is the correct approach. I think it's more of a if you look at warfare over the past 20 years, let's say from Desert Storm on, I think what you see is a when when we have tr- succeeded. And by succeeding, I mean we have achieved our political objectives, and we have done so at a relatively low cost. That, to me, is the definition of success, whatever those objectives might be. Mm-hmm. If, if The times we have done that have usually not included hundreds of thousands of conventional ground troops fighting major battles in occupying countries. Obviously, we had to have those forces in, in Desert Storm, for example, but... As even Schwarzkopf would have admitted, the Iraqi army was a defeated enemy before the ground offensive even started, mm-hmm. five weeks after the air campaign started. We had softened them up to where every single frontline Iraqi division had been attrited below 50%, which by definition means that they were combat ineffective. That's astounding. Now, after that, in, in operations, whether it be in, in, uh, in Afghanistan at the beginning, you know, you have to recall that Kabul fell, and using special operations, air power, and the Northern Alliance to defeat the Taliban, and Kabul fell, and it wasn't until three weeks later after that that the first conventional American conventional ground troops actually arrived in country. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, was a hell of a success story, as was Northern Iraq in 2003. Mm-hmm. We were supposed to invade from Turkey and also from the south. Well, Turkey wouldn't let us. And so we had no conventional ground troops in the north, but we had a brigade, I think, that was airdropped in without their equipment. And we had the Kurds, and we had special operations, and we had a lot of air power. And so it was 13, 14 Iraqi divisions were destroyed without any conventional major battle taking place between American forces and the Iraqis. That, to me, is impressive. And then you look at uh, other places like in Bosnia and Kosovo, where there were no uh, NATO ground troops involved, for example, or in Libya, the same thing. To me, those are uh, important precedents for thinking about current and future war, at least in the near future. Uh, that the traditional way of boots on the ground, putting in hundreds of thousands of occupation troops, may not be such a good idea because they're risky. And infidels don't want us to be there. And so often, whether it be in Vietnam or whether it be in Iraq, Afghanistan, or wherever, that the introduction of large numbers of infidel ground troops are not looked upon as liberators, but they're looked upon as troublemakers and invaders. And so how do we avoid doing that? Besides the enormous cost and risk involved in putting those types of forces in, and the collateral damage, which is another huge factor, which is now important in modern military affairs. We have to be very, very conscious of that. And so when you put all that together, to me, it kind of militates against uh, a a traditional Clausewitzian way of looking at warfare and trying to come up with something a bit new. If the enemy's going to fight us asymmetrically, then we're going to fight him with our asymmetrical advantages. 
And I think that's perhaps, the, that's kind of the thesis of my, main thesis of my book as I sum it up in the last chapter. Do you, um, and this question, this might be outside of the scope of the book and perhaps what you researched, but can you think of any examples in the last 25 years where any country in the world used um, just kind of a punitive action, uh, a raid or something like that to punish an enemy? Um, you know, you're not invading or controlling the enemy's territory, but you make them stop doing something you don't want them to do just by a quick strike and, and that's it. I suppose you could argue that Libya was precisely that, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, the United Nations imposed a uh, an air blockade of Libya. In fact, when they wanted to, uh, there, was, there was some talk of introducing NATO troops, and, uh, and the League of Arab States vetoed it. They said, absolutely not. That would be interfering with the sovereignty uh, of, a, of a UN member, and, and you're not allowed to do that. But they didn't mind using an air operation only and not ground troops to uh, intervene and to impose a um, air blockade, if you will, or an air umbrella over Libya. A couple of months later, they started using air strikes to support the local Libyan insurgents. They approved that as well, not only the League of Arab States, but also the, um, uh, the United Nations. So they looked upon that as being an acceptable way of doing things. And so you had a situation where a period, I don't know how long the Libyan thing lasts, a couple of months, I suppose, where not where no NATO troops were involved, no NATO lives were lost, and that we achieved our political goal of overthrowing Gaddafi and setting up, uh, allowing the insurgents to set up a new government. Mm-hmm. Now, once they set it up, obviously, then it's going to be up to them to make sure it works, to make sure that they've done the right things to get the support of the people, Etc. But I think the Libyan situation was a classic example of where it did work. And similarly in, uh, in, in Bosnia and, uh, and, and in Kosovo, where, again, uh, no NATO ground troops were involved. In fact, they were prohibited by NATO's uh, going in presumption that we would not use ground forces in, in NATO. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always the threat that you might change your mind and you might use them, but we didn't. And as a result of that, it lasted, I don't know, six weeks, I think. Mm-hmm. And when all was said and done, just using local indigenous forces like the uh, Kosovar Liberation Army, as well as air power, as well as the robust uh, ISR, that sort of thing, um, the, the Serbian army was essentially driven back, and Milosevic ended up dying in a prison cell waiting for war crimes trials. So mm-hmm. I think those were pretty good examples of, of when we were able to use this new paradigm of war, if you will, to achieve very significant political results. And, of course, ISIS, my God, you know, for three years, ISIS was growing and uh, conquering territory and setting up a new caliphate. And then uh, in a period of a year, without the introduction of American troops, using drone warfare and, and air power and whatnot, and indigenous ground troops like the Iraqis and the Syrians, uh, ISIS was destroyed. So that, to me, is pretty significant. And, again, when you look at the low risk involved and the low cost involved, why wouldn't we want to try to replicate that model in, in future, uh, future actions? Where it applies. Does it apply in every case? Of course not. Is it always going to work? No. But if it fails, it's going to fail less spectacularly than, say, putting three or 400,000 combat ground troops in a country for a period of 10 years and suffering enormous losses at a cost of trillions of dollars. 
Do you think, um, and I might be mistaken on this assumption, but I feel like um, there was a time, and perhaps it still exists, when strategic air bombing um, was considered uh, sort of the be-all and end-all of combat, where you didn't even need ground troops to succeed. And maybe that, that idea doesn't exist anymore, um, or maybe it does. Can you address it? I would argue that virtually no airmen during World War II thought that. They thought that it was an important, strategic bombing was an important factor, but it, it could not do it alone. And I've, I've sought, I looked for quotations by leading airmen like Tui Spots or Hap Arnold or, or people like that, or uh, even Bomber Harris, to try to come up with examples of where they said air power is going to win the war. They never said that. I mean, for one thing, you had, oh God, what, 100 divisions, 150 Russian divisions on the Eastern Front chewing up 100 German divisions? I mean, good heavens, uh, we could not have done it without the Russian army, the Soviet army. So, and of course, with the, uh, you know, the Allied armies uh, after D-Day as well. So, no, I don't think that any airmen believed that air power could win war alone. Mm-hmm. During the nuclear age, that's a little bit different because, again, because of the psychological aspect of it, which I mentioned earlier, plus the fact that the the initial nuclear weapons, not atomic, but the nuclear ones that came along later, were so powerful and so deadly that I think it was reasonable to believe that if an all-out nuclear exchange occurred, it would last a week or so and then it would all be over, and there wouldn't be any forces left to invade an enemy country, and there probably wouldn't even be an enemy country to invade. Mm -hmm. So thank God that never happened. Mm -hmm. But I think there was a period, you're right, throughout the 1950s, where Strategic Air Command was considered the top dog in American defense policy. And remember who the president was at that time. It was a five-star Army general. Dwight Eisenhower, and his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was a Navy Admiral, Admiral Arthur Radford. So you had a soldier and a sailor decide that the best way to fight or to confront, if you will, the, uh, the Soviet Union and China was through a possibly a massive policy of massive retaliation and, and nuclear weapons. Now, those days are gone. Mm-hmm. I think, like I said, you, you still have to have the nuclear turn available just to keep people honest. Uh, I don't think that should ever go away, but is is nuclear warfare ever going to be the key again to our defense strategy? I hope not. Uh, and and as far as conventional air power is concerned, is it always going to be the only thing? Is it is it ever going to be the only thing necessary to fight and win uh, wars? Uh, and the answer is no. I don't think so. Uh, but that's different from saying that it could play a decisive or a dominant role. It's not going to play the only role, mm-hmm. but it's going to be dominant. It's going to be extremely important when you factor in special operations forces, when you factor in the threat of using conventional forces, which are so damn good, the uh, enemy countries have got to worry about the threat of America sending in the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got to use indigenous forces. I mean, how many times have you, have you, have you, uh, have you heard it that, we shouldn't be fighting the war 
for other peoples. They've got to fight and win the war themselves. And if they, whether it be the South Vietnamese, or whether it be the Iraqis or the Afghanis or whoever, if they're not willing to fight for their own freedom, why the hell should we bother to fight for them? Mm-hmm. And so I think there has got to be that very strong component of the local forces who are going to do the majority of the fighting on the ground. We will supply our asymmetrical advantage, which is air power, space power, drone power, cyber power, etc., and special operations forces, which are the best in the world, plus the mobility assets, which can get them there to the theater and back again and resupplied and and whatnot uh, on a constant basis. So I think those are our asymmetrical advantages that we ought to play to. Do you think um, the amount of money spent on aircraft carriers and new generation fighter jets is worth is worth it in in the modern age of warfare um that's you know it's another one of those tough questions i would i would tend to say yes uh and it's funny because when i was in the pentagon um i followed kind of the uh curtis lemay adage when he was apparently there was a young captain giving him a briefing and this young captain mentioned the soviet enemy and LeMay stopped him and he said, Captain, the Soviets are our adversary. The Navy is our enemy. <laughs> so I think when I was in the Pentagon, I kind of, kind of bought into that a little bit, that the, that the Navy guys were, were more our, our adversaries and our enemies than they were our allies uh, and whatnot. I'm over that now. <laughs> and I think that the Navy is, you know, again, I taught four years at the Naval War College and, and I had, Lots of long and in-depth discussions which, uh, with career naval officers, and I still do. And so I become convinced that uh, sea power and air power from the sea, uh, i.e. the form of aircraft carriers, are crucial to national defense and our national security. So I would in no way try to, try to cut them back. Mm-hmm. And at the same token, uh, I do think that modern aircraft, especially stealthy aircraft, which the F-22 and the F-35R, are absolutely crucial to maintaining America's edge. For example, if we did ever think, God forbid, have to fight a war against the Russians or the Chinese, how the heck are we going to penetrate enemy territory? B-52s are not going to make it. B-1s are probably not going to make it. B-2s, F-22s, and F-35s, and obviously missiles, standoff missiles and things like that, are going to be the only things that we're going to be able to penetrate with. So is it money well spent to have these new generation of stealthy tactical fighters and fighter bombers, both land-based and sea-based, so that they can deter against those types of future threats? Absolutely. So I think that is money well spent. So once again, if we had to go back to that age-old question of what's more important, let's say, a heavy division versus a fighter wing versus a marine brigade versus uh, an aircraft carrier or whatever, uh, I would tend to think that if you're going to have to cut someplace, then there are. it's not a question of what you should cut, but maybe more of a question of what you should not cut. And for me, I would be reluctant to cut too much in the way of air power or space power or cyber power because, again, I think those are our asymmetrical advantages that makes the United States as powerful as it is. And the other services, the other capabilities are very important in certain things, 
Uh, and like I said, but if, if you really do have to cut, I would, again, try to think of it in terms of what are the essentials that we do not want to cut back. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's the way I would answer your question. I guess sort of the broader um, idea I was also exploring is, you know, if if the United States or the West has strong conventional power and adversaries then go to asymmetric warfare, you know, does should the U.S. chase that or just maintain its edge in conventional? You know, how, how do you balance that out is, is sort of what I was thinking. Uh, I think what we're doing now as far as force structure, again, is reasonably good. I mean, good grief. What are we spending, six, $700 billion a year <laughs> on defense, yeah. which is almost as much as the rest of the world combined? I mean, it, it, it's not. I mean, but it's close. Hmm. Uh, the amount of money we spend is 10 times more than uh, on defense, is 10 times more than any potential adversary. Um, and it doesn't appear that whoever is in power, Democrats or the Republicans, a pacifist or a dove, does make any difference. They're willing to, the American people and, the, and Congress and the presidency is willing to spend that money. So I think we're going to continue to do that. And if that's the case, then I think we'll continue to maintain a tremendous advantage, again, across the spectrum. And that's, again, what makes the Americans, the United States, such a difficult uh, enemy to try to force structure against. When you're spending one-tenth as much as we are, where are you going to put your money? Hmm. Are you going to try to defeat the U.S. Air Force, which is the best in the world? Are you going to try to defeat the U.S. Army, which is the best in the world, or the U.S. Navy, or the or, you know? So I think we present tremendous problems. So again, when I look at what we're spending our money on and what our force structure looks like, I frankly am reasonably content in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody comes in and says we have to cut 30% of the defense budget, well, that's a different question. Mm-hmm. Like I say, then you're going to have to make some hard choices because that's real money that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's going to happen. It, it uh, Despite what everybody has said that they would like to do uh, and have a peace dividend and all that sort of thing, that really doesn't occur. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that's going to happen at any time in the near future, regardless of who wins the next election. Okay. So now let me turn towards how you did uh, put put the book together. Um, so yeah. it, it seems to be a collection of essays um, based on your experience over time. Did you do any additional research for putting this together? Always you do research. I mean, uh, it, it, you're right. A lot of these were articles that I had uh, drafted out, in some cases published uh, in years past. Uh, and when it came time to try to put this book together, I went back and I redid all of them. Uh, most of them are unrecognizable from from uh, pieces that I had done, say, 10 years ago, five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I did a lot more research. Um, and I looked at things a lot more closely. I talked to, you know, my, my friends and, and whatnot and, and got various points of view. So, uh, yes, I, I did have to do a, a lot more research than than I had uh, done, you know, originally to, to write the, or draft out the original essays in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were some surprises as, as I went into this as well. Some things I had suspected, and um, uh, but the more I looked at it and the, and the more I peeled that onion, uh, the more things surprised me. I have a chapter in a book on, um, on the American military tradition, for example. Mm-hmm. And 
And that, to me, is one of the most uh, unusual chapters in the book and, and one I'm kind of proud of because uh, it, it, uh, it is another one of those conventional wisdom issues uh, that the more I thought about it, the more I said, ah, I'm not sure I buy that conventional wisdom anymore. Hmm. Essentially, it's this, that the American military tradition is that the, United, that the, the military in, in the United States is divorced from politics, that it believes totally in civilian control and never tries to interfere. That is considered to be, in a nutshell, the American military tradition. And if you were to ask a soldier, sailor, or a scholar, uh, you know, an academic, what the American military tradition is, my guess is that's what they would tell you. What I discovered was that's not the case at all. <laughs> at least historically, that's not the case at all. It might be today, but it sure wasn't the case 100, 200 years ago in our country's history. And that, to me, really amazed me. As I, Like I said, the more research I did, the more I peeled that onion. I started off with looking at one of my favorite war characters from, from the 19th century, and that was Winfield Scott. For, for some reason, Winfield Scott. Most people don't, but I, I kind of like <laughs> the guy. And when I read a couple of his various biographies, uh, which clearly express his, you know, military abilities and strategies and, you know, all that sort of thing, his leadership, uh, I also realized that they also mentioned some kind of strange things. Like, for example, in 1852, he declared him, he was a declared Whig, which was a political party, and he vied, he told the Whig par, political leaders, party leaders, that he wanted to be uh, the nominee for president. Uh, and so he, in fact, was, gained the nomination over the sitting president, Miller Fillmore, and then Wilford, and then Winfield Scott ran as a Whig candidate for president against Franklin Pierce, who was the Democrat, hmm. who, by the way, had used to been his subordinate, who was a brigadier general in the Mexican War. Hmm. He lost the election, even though he went around the country giving speeches. He never resigned. He never took off his uniform. He hmm. lost the election, and yet he shrugged his shoulders, went back to his desk, and remained the commanding general of the United States Army for the next 10 years. Wow. And in fact, a couple of years after the election, Congress liked him so much they promoted him to a third star, the first lieutenant general since George Washington. So in other words, what I saw was a serving general officer who <laughs> deliberately and very much interfered in the political process and tried to elect get himself elected to president while still in uniform and running as a general officer. And nobody at the time, and this is what got me, nobody at the time thought there was anything unusual. Hmm. There was not a big objection from the Democrats, the other party. Obviously, the Whigs are the ones who nominated him, so they thought it was a great idea. The newspapers, the media, and the people did not think there was anything unusual within that. So that shocked me, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. So I started off with that kernel of an idea, uh, and I had ran this idea through friends of mine, and they said, ah, oh, that was an anomaly. He was all by himself. So the more, so I started doing research, and the more, I, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that he was not the exception to the rule. He was the rule, whether it be uh, Andrew Jackson or uh, George Washington or... Um, William Henry Harrison or Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor was another one who ran for president while serving 
as a general officer and did not resign his commission from the Army until after he was elected president. 1864, Abraham Lincoln's opponent in the election that year was General Major General George McClellan, mm-hmm. who had been the commanding general of the Union Army. He's still a major general. He's still on active duty. He's still wearing his uniform. He doesn't resign until election day, after he leaves, after he loses, by the way, in a landslide. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Ulysses S. Grant is the commanding general of the U.S. Army and a four-star general, the first in American history. He's also serving simultaneously as a secretary of war, which is kind of amazing. He runs for president as commanding general, General U.S. Grant. Mm-hmm. He wins the election, and he finally puts in his resignation to take effect on Inauguration Day, so he didn't have to lose a paycheck. <laughs> so that, to me, uh, the realization, and, and there's a lot of other cases, too, by this, by the way, that, that go all the way up to MacArthur and, and Eisenhower, uh, who, while on active duty, were secretly maneuvering to get their party's nomination for, for the presidency. So, to me, that was the American military tradition. So, uh, it was direct involvement in political affairs by the military. Uh, that surprised me. Now, a huge surprise to me how prevalent that tendency was. But then things changed. Things changed around the time of the Vietnam War. And there's lots of reasons for that, and, and people and personalities who had an effect on that. I think um, uh, McNamara, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, had, had a, a large role in, in playing that. He was just... <laughs> He was dead against uh, any military officer who was who he thought was encroaching on his prerogatives, uh, and war had changed and, and things had changed, and so uh, I agree with the change in the American military tradition. I don't think that the military ought to play a major role or any role for for that matter in domestic politics or domestic affairs. They shouldn't. But saying that is different from saying that as a justification that, well, it's always been that way. That's, after all, the American military tradition. Because it's not the American military tradition. So if you're going to tell me that the military should be should stay out of politics, then give me some good arguments as to why, and don't try to concoct some type of a fake history to justify your position. And I think that's what has happened uh, in the past. Wow, that's... So that to me was one of the talked about, you know, the, uh, surprises in, um, in in research, mm-hmm. and that to me was a huge surprise. Yeah, that's was the, the prevalence of, of the military and politics throughout America's history. I had no idea. That's really fascinating. Um, was there a particular question that you had particular difficulty getting an answer on, or maybe you just never really came to a, a conclusion you were satisfied with? No, I can't say so. Um, Another big surprise, by the way, was I wrote that chapter on uh, unity of command in the Pacific during World War II. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, the conventional wisdom. I said this book is essentially a book of anomalies trying to challenge conventional wisdoms in some cases. Conventional wisdom was that there was no unity of command in the Pacific like there was in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you look at it, I realize, well, it's just not true. <laughs> there wasn't a unity of command in Europe. Eisenhower wasn't in command of Europe. There was an Italian theater, the Mediterranean theater, with a field marshal who was his co-equal. He didn't, and he didn't control the Atlantic. That was a, a British admiral who who controlled Iceland and Greenland and whatnot. And and Leon say he had no say whatsoever what the Soviets were were doing in Central Europe. So with, there was no unity of command. 
So why did we think it was essential that there be one person in charge of this huge Pacific area, which was 10 times larger than Europe? So that, to me, was kind of a, a surprise as well. Uh, and uh, what I finally concluded was it's just inter-service robbery, and it still is. Parochialism between mostly uh, sailors and soldiers about who ought to be in charge and uh, land historians and sea historians about who should have been in charge during World War II. And they, and they just continue to fight this battle of u- using a principle of war, unity of command, as their foil for trying to uh, prove their point re- regarding uh, unity of command in the Pacific. So I think that was another one of the kind of the surprises that the more I peeled the onion, uh, the more I realized that there was something, something going on. Now, if there was one topic that was difficult for me to find information on, it was, uh, I only wrote uh, two chapters dealing with uh, air power at all. Uh, all the other ones dealt with uh, essentially our uh, warfare in general. But towards the end, I have two chapters. One of them is on intelligence in the air war during World War II. And I have, that is something, uh, uh, a theme of mine that I have had during most of my um, academic career for 20 years. 20 years ago, I wrote that the key to air power is targeting, and the key to targeting is intelligence. So I wrote that 25 years ago, I think, that one-liner. And But trying to find information on that was very difficult for me. I intuitively believed that that was the case and, and, and whatnot, but it was very hard until uh, within about the past 10 years or so, a lot of documents that I found, some of them had been, had been classified, other ones that were so obscure that even though they were perhaps not classified, I had never seen them or heard them before. And other books came out by people who had also found new information, which had been left kind of unlooked at for 40 years after World War II, for example. And, and so it was only really in the past five, six years or so that that chapter on um, intelligence and uh, air operations during World War II was able to be written, at least by me. Uh, because until that time, I just didn't have the, the information at my fingertips that could make a case as to why air intelligence was so important and why it was so difficult to get and what they did with it and how they choose their targeting and what mistakes they made uh, during the war and what bright ideas they come up with during the war and how important all of that is in the post-World War II era. So that probably that, that uh, was the one example where I had a heck of a time uh, trying to get data and information on a subject which I had strong feelings about but which I had been unable to write anything authoritative on because I just didn't have the, doubt, the, the data or the details to do so. Mm-hmm. So what do you hope the book will do for readers? I hope that it will induce them to do what I did when I started out. You know, go back to an hour ago when we started this conversation. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to do was challenge conventional wisdom to challenge assertions, to to look at what people just kind of flippantly said, well, that's the way it is. Um, here's the truth. I would hope it would lead readers to do the same thing. 
that would that would be not just the topics that I'm covering, obviously, in this book, um, but to look at other topics as well, ones that I can't even think of or ones that I can't name, where they would say, well, you know, we always thought that this was the case. But, you know, now after reading this book, I realize that, you know, maybe I should look into that a little bit and, and, and see if I can find some actual data about it. The, the digress for one small point here, for example, I wrote a, another book later on, uh, or, or earlier, about 10, 15 years ago, where one of the conventional wisdoms I heard was that, for example, um, that the Air Corps between World War One and World War Two was receiving a disproportionate share of the Army budget, and it had more personnel, it had more money, it had more influence, etc., than did the other branches. Well, I had heard that, and I had read that for years. And so one day I said, you know, I wonder what the actual numbers are. So I spent a lot of time in a library digging through and trying to find out uh, old copies of Secretary of War reports to the president, etc., and trying to actually get things like budget numbers, personnel numbers, etc. And again, what I found out was that the conventional wisdom was false, that the numbers which had been there all along, but nobody had bothered to look at them, mm-hmm. told a different story than what was usually being told. And so what I would hope is that readers would get the same kind of skepticism about military affairs that I developed over the years. And that skepticism was largely the result, frankly, of having to deal with other services, both in uniform, while I was in the Pentagon, or uh, teaching in, in the various war colleges and staff colleges, where they would come up and they would challenge me on certain things that I said about air power, which to me was, well, it's obviously everybody knows that. Hmm. Well, they didn't know that. Hmm. <laughs> they thought it, the, you know, the, the situation was something totally different. And so when I looked at all of these things, it forced me, like I said, to, to go back and to start looking at basic premises and going back to basic documents to find out what the actual truth was. And I would hope that anybody who reads this book would would think along the same lines, that rather than accept accept something at at face value, they would try to backtrack, look at the sources, and go back and see what the the data actually said uh, about a, a certain event. Did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published? I had sent it to one or two other publishers beforehand, and for one of the reasons, uh, one reason or another, they uh, elected not to um, uh, accept it for mm-hmm. publication. I had one uh, uh, chapter in there, one article in there, which was even more controversial than some of the other ones I've just talked about, mm-hmm. um, and I knew it. And I knew it would be a potential showstopper. Uh, but I kind of dug in my heels in on it for the first couple uh, of publishers who said, no, we don't really agree with this one. We don't think it ought to be included in here. And I said, well, tough, because I think it, it has to be. And so it kind of reached an impasse, and I moved on. Finally, uh, I decided, you know, when six people tell you something, um, maybe, maybe you ought to listen. <laughs> and so I went back, and I looked at this one chapter uh, again, more closely, and I realized that uh, maybe they're right, 
and, and uh, so I took it out okay. uh, of the of the book hmm. uh, out of the manuscript, and they immediately then said, "Fine, I will publish it." Uh, at first, it irritated me just a little bit. I looked upon it as a form of censorship or whatever. Hmm. Uh, but the more I think about it, yeah, no, nah, it's okay. I understand what they're saying, and I and I might have by including this one essay. Uh, done harm to the book and to myself by putting an argument into that uh, into the manuscript that perhaps detracted or um, distracted uh, from the main argument that I was trying to make. So that was about the only problem. I thought University of Press Kentucky was, uh, I've dealt with geez, seven or eight different publishers over the years, and um, they were about as easy to get along with and uh, quick as well, which is not necessarily always the case uh, as any publisher I've dealt with. So I like them, frankly, and I would definitely go back to them again if I had another manuscript to offer. Uh, do you have a current or future writing project in mind? Uh, I've got about uh, six or seven great books. Uh, <laughs> ideas, uh, stacking up like cordwood, as a friend of mine once phrased it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, I'm 71, and I don't travel much anymore and I uh, lost my wife two years ago, and the thought of spending a couple of weeks sitting in the dusty archives in Washington, D.C., three or four times, going there for two weeks at a time, like I have done in the past, or down to Montgomery, Alabama, which is where the Air Force archives are, and spending that time in the archives. I'm just not sure I want to do that anymore. <laughs> so, uh, like I said, I got a lot of great ideas, but I'm not sure I have the will to carry them out anymore. Mm-hmm. So I do have one idea, frankly, that um, would not require me to do a lot of uh, primary research in archival research. Uh, so it's something I could probably do from here, in, you know, in Chicago. We've got a lot of good libraries here in Chicago, so I could probably do it from here without having to spend weeks at a time in D.C. or in uh, Alabama. But whether I will have the uh, the will to get off my dead butt and actually go do it is, uh, is another story. Okay. No, I, I get that. Is there, do you have a website or anywhere on social media that people can follow your work or thoughts? No, afraid not. Don't, uh, <laughs> don't have anything like that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No. Uh, I appreciate giving you the opportunity to talk about this. Obviously, it's a uh, subject near and dear to my heart, mm-hmm. and uh, first time I've done one of these, and it is kind of fun to explain, um, you know, where I'm coming from uh, on, on some of these topics. So, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I learned quite a bit, so uh, I appreciate it as well. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great military history information. You can find links to interesting military history videos on my Facebook page, War Scholar. You can find links to interesting military history news articles, military history archaeology information, and academic information on my Twitter page, War Scholar. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar. You can find my military history videos on my YouTube page, WarScholar1945. You can also sign up for my newsletter at WarScholar.org or MilitaryHistoryPodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links, 
as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. Thank you for listening.